Welcome to Rhythm, Routine, and Reverence, the podcast that inspires parents and caregivers to craft and create a nourishing and nurturing home that supports the entire family, head, heart, and hands. Welcome to Rhythm, Routine, and Reverence. I'm so happy that you've joined me. In this episode, I'll be sitting down with Jocelyn Brewer and Kelly Cloutier from Metaversal Wellbeing. Jocelyn is a cyber psychologist based in Sydney. She's the founder of Digital Nutrition and is a researcher with Sydney University and speaks regularly about digital well-being. Kelly is a New York-based brand and innovation strategist. With a background in art, media, and cultural theory, she spent nearly a decade consulting for some of the world's biggest, most disruptive brands with a specialty in food and beverage, health, and wellness. Metaversal Wellbeing has grown to become an innovative project reimagining digital well-being. After virtually collaborating across hemispheres for the past three years, Jocelyn and Kelly scheduled a trip to LA to meet for the first time in person. This podcast was recorded during their first in-person meetup. To learn more about Metaversal Wellbeing, you can head to www.metaversalwellbeing.com. You can find all sorts of free resources, some of which we share in the episode, on their Thinking and Tools page. So welcome, Jocelyn and Kelly. To get us started, I thought you could each introduce yourselves and share what inspired you to focus on mindfulness in the digital age and how you came to this work and possibly how you came to each other as well. So hi, I'm Kelly, and I'm the co-founder of Metaversal Wellbeing. I am based in New York and I was reflecting on this because it's interesting to like really pinpoint the impetus of this for me, but it really started in a conversation I was having with one of my best friends and we were sharing just some struggles we were having with anxiety and, you know, going back and forth. And then we paused and I said, do you know anyone that's not anxious? And we couldn't think of anyone. That's not true. We could think of one person who, as an aside, actually isn't on social media, uh, which is funny. (laughs) But we thought that was really interesting. And so my background is actually in art and media theory. And because of that, I, I apply that lens to a lot of things that I think about. And I began to suspect that this sort of perma anxious state could probably be attributed to our media and our internet climate specifically information overwhelm. So at the same time, I was working full-time for a brand and innovation firm who does a ton of work in the health food industry. And I realized that the way we approach food consumption had become much more sophisticated than the way we approach media consumption. And long ago, not that long ago, not that long ago at all, you know, food was all about calorie counting and crash dieting. And in the past couple decades, it's really shifted to a more mainstream focus on things like quality, sourcing, and balance. And as I was reflecting on our media habits, they're still so stuck in that screen time counting, detoxing kind of phase of understanding. So I realized that, you know, it was really my mission in life to evolve that conversation to bring more things like quality, balance, and sourcing into our approach to media. 
So yeah, I'm Jocelyn Brewer. I am from Sydney and sitting in a hotel room in LA right now where Kelly and I have actually just met for the very first time after three years of hanging out in Zoom rooms and thinking and talking and and uh, plotting, I guess. I got into the space of cyber psychology and digital well-being in about 2008, which seems like uh, a ridiculous <laughs> number of years ago now, actually when I retrained from being a classroom teacher, a high school teacher, into being a school counsellor where I had a look at what was happening with kids and gaming. And I really was like a dog with a bone. I I didn't put down the ideas that came with that, you know, until now. I mean, I'm still going, obviously, with with some of these issues. So a lot of my work, I formed a a little organisation called Digital Nutrition, which is a healthy technology use philosophy, all about thinking about technology like we do food and looking at the quality of what we're consuming who made that are we you know consuming from the 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 big supermarket chains or the the kind of farmer's market sort of thing and Kelly and I were introduced by somebody that I had met again online some of my best friends have been people on the internet digitally nutritious wonderful humans about three years ago now so it has been we only met for the first time in person yesterday which was like really incredible (laughs) nearly tearing up thinking about yesterday (laughs) so yeah that's us (laughs) yeah that's beautiful yeah and just to give you a little preview of about me and also the audience I came to this work I actually my first child was born in 2008 and I think it was only like a year after the first iPhone came out Mm. and we were quickly drawn to Waldorf education which really focuses on minimal to ideally no media in early childhood up to age seven, which I wrote a lot of blog posts about way back when, and we found it really supportive and nourishing. But then he was my first and I had a lot more control of his environment than I did when I then had four children. (laughs) And so my youngest, all of a sudden we were having our nice movie nights on Fridays and my youngest was maybe three or four. And it was very hard to kind of separate and make these like clean bubbles. And then another challenge that I found and that a Waldorf, a lot of Waldorf schools maybe don't consider is once they hit age seven or they're going into around grade one and you're wanting to introduce media in a more like balanced, balanced and um, just conscious way they didn't really have a lot of resources about that for parents. And so I was left kind of wondering, well, what do we do? How do we baby step into this technological world? Because we can't just avoid it. So I'm really excited to have you both here and to talk more about that. And I think a lot of what we'll talk about today is focused more on parents' use of tech, um, because I think it's something that's often missed. And as a Waldorf early childhood educator, too, we often um, talk about how parents modeling a behavior is so important to to learning the behavior. And that, you know, it's just that old saying, like, practice what you preach and <laughs> you can't say one thing and then do another. So I'm, I'm really excited to have you both here. So I thought we'd start by uh, discussing why it is important for parents to consider possibly cutting down on their own screen use, or just adopting more mindful tech habits for themselves. What are the possible risks of too much screen use for adults? Because I think we often consider what the risks are for children, but what are they for adults? And how do we even kind of check in and know that we're overusing our screens? 
So I just want to make the disclaimer really quickly that I am not a parent yet. I am approaching that time of life where that might become a very real possibility soon. But I have thought about this a lot. And in the context of even raising children in a digital world is something that I've given uh, a lot of thought to. So I do think a lot of times when we think about our digital habits and our devices, we tend to think about how distracting they are and how they pull us away from more important things. And that's totally true. But beyond just how you spend your time, I think it's really fascinating the ways that the time you spend online, how that shapes the way you see the world and the way you see yourself. And to me, these these things, you know, it ultimately determines your larger purpose, your worldview. And so when I do think about becoming a parent, I know that I want to pass down things like optimism, authenticity, self-worth, clarity of purpose, you know, presence. And the internet can really diminish all of those qualities within yourself so quickly. It can leave you feeling hopeless and materialistic and insecure and lost and all of these things. So as I've been rethinking my relationship with the internet, I know that for me personally, it can be such a positive source of collaboration and connection, you know, as evidenced by this project and self-expression and education. And so for me, it's about intentionally feeding that potential and not just mindlessly binging on whatever the algorithm or advertisers are going to serve you. Yeah. And just to kind of follow on from that, it's kind of that digital literacy and and beyond that, beyond just literacy, I think we all are aware that there's a literacy with our online lives that we have not had the lessons in yet. It's building those capabilities. So from awareness into the interventions and the behavior change, which, you know, obviously as a psychologist, I'm very interested in how you actually move people from information and knowledge and awareness into action and and really shifting into living aligned to your values. We know that the presence of technology interferes. So technoference is a one of those many words that pop up in this space, that it does erode and disconnect us while being in the same place. We've got, you know, notions of things like fubbing or phone snubbing. We've got brexting, breastfeeding while texting, all of these words that have come into our vocabulary about where technology really kind of chops our life into bits of confetti that then make it really hard to be mindful, to be present, because you're constantly kind of trying to chase your tail and catch up on many sources of information, many friends, all of those sorts of things. So I guess the role modeling really is the the key thing that I focus on in, in my screens in early childhood kind of work around like we we forget how easily and how quickly we pick up our phone to take a call or reply to a message or do that like quick photo. Oh, that was so cute. Do that again. It really kind of fractures some of the interactions that we have, especially in those early childhood language development kind of years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I saw a study just about that specifically. Yeah, my next question was about fubbing and how it impacts our relationships. I I became conscious of it more and more with my children. And it's so like 
tiny and insidious because as soon as a message comes in or, you know, you want to focus on something and it might be about serving them in some way, you know, like their teachers messaging and asking to bring a pumpkin for Halloween or whatever it is. And you're, you're writing back, but you're just completely taken out of that moment with them and put into another world. And my kids have told me all the time, like I've been saying mom, mom for like, you know, a minute or whatever it is. And I'm just not there. And then I wake up and I'm like, oh, so maybe what I would also ask is, do you recommend or do you have techniques yourselves where you can bring a little bit more mindfulness? It's like, is there really a way to kind of be engaging in your phone, replying to a message, but also bring that consciousness, like expand it a little bit more outward where you're also a little bit more present of your environment? Is that what you would do? Or do you hold certain strong boundaries with with time restraints? What What is your approach with, with how we could maybe help even just that, that fubbing epidemic a little yeah. bit. Yeah, I, I think it's a little bit to do with compassion. So even, you know, even me, I'm not, I kind of massive disclaimer, I've, I'm a parent to one and I get it wrong all the time and I have to course correct all the time because again, that, that gap between intention and action is always there. So I think it's, it's really trial and error. It's very personal in terms of what works. And then it's the compassion of the self-correction when you kind of feel like you're screwing it up. I do try and time block. I, I have as few apps on my phone as humanly possible. And I'm really good at just having this sense of people can wait. We've gotten into this kind of culture or expectation of accessibility and, you know, responsivity. And quite frankly, most things can wait. It's not important to reply within 30 seconds. And having managing those expectations around how long to expect to reply for certain things, I think then puts everyone else at ease as well, because a lot of this is quite contagious. You mm-hmm. see somebody get their phone out and suddenly that's permission to get their phone out. If somebody replies really quickly, that sets up that expectation of replying really quickly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've had to navigate a few times because, I mean, I'm not perfect at it, but I don't reply often to texts or WhatsApp messages like immediately. And uh, a few times someone has reached out and said like, are you mad at me? Are you, (laughs) I have had to say, no, no, like I just, life, you know, happened and I'm sorry I didn't message back, but they just come in streams and you can't, yeah, you can't write back over and over and over again. And the the question- It's really funny though. That's so centric, right? Egocentric in terms of it's Mm -hmm. about them. It's not the perspective of, hey, you've got four kids, you're doing all these things maybe my message wasn't that important. It really didn't compel a reply Mm. that there's this, you know, if you share a meme in the group, I saw a meme about sharing memes, which is like, you know, the sign of best friends is like, I send you memes and you don't reply. And we still Mm. know that we're connected. So there's all of these kind of unspoken rules that we need to, I think, sometimes bring to the surface and say, I am not going to like every single meme or I'm not going to comment and reply all the time and just setting that agreement up. So you don't have the conversations where you're like, no, I'm not mad at you. I'm just busy. And even that as a statement, you know. No, I've told two people explicitly now, if I don't message back, like it is not because I'm mad at you. If I'm mad or upset, I will tell you, I promise. (laughs) Um, Yeah. And then. Yeah. And I've even. Yeah, go ahead. Go ahead. I'm sorry. Oh, I was just going to say that I have had that conversation with quite a few people in my life that I'm definitely more introverted. And 
I've let them know that even though it's through a phone or through a message or through a DM or something, that's still a conversation. And that still does actually drain my social battery in ways that you might not expect. And so just to have some patience and to understand that we are so immersed in these constant conversations on like five platforms simultaneously with everybody that you know, and that it really is a lot. And to just kind of give people grace, Mm. just like Jocelyn was saying. And this isn't a prepared question, but I was curious, Mm -hmm. Kelly and, and Jocelyn, you both said something similar, which was, I think you said, you know, we're consuming this media. And so how can we take this optimistic perspective and curate it in a way that's empowering or inspiring or whatever it is. And, and then you said you had minimal apps on your phone. And I found that really helpful for me as well. It's just less distracting. And the same with um, following people on social media. I feel like awful sometimes because I just unfollow ruthlessly all the time. (laughs) But it's just my way of managing the amount of information I'm getting. It's nothing about the person or the content. And I I just have this feeling that I can always find it again if I need it. And I might follow again later on or whatever it is. Um, Yeah, it's it's like a pantry. It's like a pantry. And when and you look in the pantry and you go, oh, that's been sitting on the shelf for ages. I have never engaged in that person's content. I don't even know who that person is. I'm not really sure why I followed them to begin with. Doing that cleanup, you find that, you know, you've got cans of baked beans sitting there since 2017 and they're just not adding utility or value. The example I gave from recently was I did a big cleanup and I noticed I was following not one but two dudes who whip a snipper and mow lawns. <laughs> and I was like, I don't, you know, like that's cool. And I like a bit of whippersnippering. That's my mindful practice and get out in my backyard and do some of that. But it's like, I do not need this clogging up my mental kind of, you know, space just because like it's a bit fascinating. So totally feel you on the the clean out the digital pantry. Mm. And what else would you share? I also think it's funny. Oh, well, I was just going to say also that I think it's so funny that I've had that experience too of like feeling bad for unfollowing someone and being like, oh, well, they notice and all of these things. But half the time, I don't even know this person. And why would they notice? And it's, it's again, just so self-centric and thinking that people are totally going to notice if me, Kelly Cloutier, this one person unfollows their account and, and all of these etiquettes and unspoken rules. And it's just a lot of it's in our own heads a lot of times. And sometimes it's really about breaking out of that. Mm. But... I would also say the, to me, one of the most important and underlying things behind selectivity and any mindful internet habits is an offline habit that is about getting radically clear on your intentions and your goals and what you as an individual are moving towards and having those practices to help ground you and center and crystallize those intentions, it really helps you bring that lens, that more critical lens to your social accounts and being like, what am I following? How does this actually serve me or what I hope to move towards in any way? And just, I I think it's wonderful that you're ruthlessly, you know, guarding your attention. I think that's amazing. And that's what we all should be doing. And the information that we consume and the people 
whose thoughts and opinions end up our worldview, we should be so critical of that. And we should be making really sure that what we're taking is what we're taking in is aligned with our greater goals and purpose and authentic Mm -hmm. selves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I'm big on your values and trying to be aligned with them. And after doing this work for many years, I also believe that they slightly change or morph as you journey through life and the different phases. And that's kind of one of the things that helps me to be ruthless is I know that I can always return to something. Maybe it's just not resonating for whatever reason in that moment. And it, it, I might come back to it again. Yeah. It's yeah, a, it's totally. a more I may very well discover that I want to whip a snip some more and I can always go back and follow <laughs> that dude, right? He's still going to be there. You know, I might expand out into the carpet cleaning videos, which <laughs> seem to be out there. <laughs> yes. And so could you speak a little bit more about, I know you, you mentioned time blocking. Are there certain strategies that you find or systems or routines that work better than others for you? I know it's really unique and individual, but have you found, I don't know, just some ideas for people to play with? Because I think sometimes we're not even sure where to start with a boundary. I think probably like I'd personally say the first boundary is like really play with this, not having your phone beside the bed, which also seems like it's maybe the hardest one, but it's, it has definitely had the most impact on me personally, my, my whole day, setting me up for the day, everything. But I know I'm not alone in saying like, it's, it's harder than it is. Like it's, it's harder in practice than it is to just to say. Yeah. Look, I, I, I do a lot of offline kind of activities to help me focus and kind of be productive as much as I sort of don't like some of those terms and this focus on productivity, I think overlooks some of the issues like we can't keep trying to squeeze ourselves to do more and more in the 24 hours that we have. And the onus being on women often to be more productive and be, you know, carry all the mental load, including managing screen time. You know, there's really clear evidence that shows that women are the people who primarily manage and think about, you know, how to, how to do this with our kids. I'm just really clear in, in how I spend my time where I need to be prioritizing the stuff that really matters and and blocking out literally I showed Kelly my diary yesterday I still have a paper diary even though everything's online as well that I can actually look at and get clear on where I'm spending my time and then where the gaps are and really my the key thing that I've done this year is putting some buffer in to my week where there's time for a kid to be sick or for me to you know kind of sit on my back step and journal or those sorts of things that often get squeezed out and get displaced so for me you know the the year was time spaciousness and even though sometimes that has not been great that have you know I always sort of say on the whole are you working and towards that and moving in an upward trend so yeah, my list writing and how I gather my thoughts, how I capture some of those I call brain farts, you know, all the things that you're constantly thinking, oh, that's a great idea. That's a great idea. You know, I have this mega list in a Google doc that I just chuck everything that I scribble down into that if I think it's worth capturing. So it gives me a bit more space in my brain. And again, my brain is neurodivergent. I have had a diagnosis of ADHD for the last 13 or so years. So again, I have quite different ways of managing that. And, and I, I noticed that there's sometimes, which is a lot harder, 
than others, you know, chuck some perimenopausal symptoms in there and it can be quite a yeah, tricky, tricky place. So, and that's why it is so important that people really kind of do what works for them. And I, I love hearing people's habits and hacks. So <laughs> bring it on. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We were just sharing yesterday. I I am so serious about my morning routine. I really, really, really try my best not to check my devices until after I've gone through a routine that I really look forward to, which I think is something that really helps this this ritual stick. But I always make sure to do some kind of grounding practice, whether it's yoga or journaling or meditating or just walking. And having that time to, again, recenter, think about my intentions, think about how I want to spend my day before I reach for the device. And having that little bit of time in the day really helps me with the time blocking. It helps me really think about what I want to allot my time and attention to. And so I just think that's so important. And then I also just love timers. I love timers. I love the Pomodoro technique. I don't trust myself to keep my time blocking and my schedule. I really, really outsource that so that there are just like these constant reminders and pings to kind of mm-hmm. recenter me towards what I really want to be doing. Yeah. I find that that does help in a number of different ways. We have a, an alarm. So this is an interesting story because I was managing my children's screen time. Yeah. Almost entirely. I was carrying that mental load. My husband and I are really trying to make our, our the emotional and mental load a little bit more equitable. And so I asked him to really be in charge of taking my two teenagers devices at eight. It, we're still not sure if it's eight 30 or nine, but it's definitely nine. <laughs> <laughs> and he was doing that for a little while and it just still, there was an argument or whatever it was. And then we finally decided, you know what? Like they know, because often it's a, I, st- I still haven't finished my homework. I still need the internet. And we've really made it clear. Like you have to finish your homework by that time. Like that's the deadline or you'll, you'll need to talk to your teachers. And so what we decided, which was just so much simpler and more relaxing for us is to actually just unplug the internet and hide the cord and we came up with this beautiful routine where nobody's in the house, so they can't hear me, but he puts it in my house coat robe pocket because that's the first thing that I put on in the morning and then I'll go on, down and turn it on. And then it, it's just like this flowing routine where, or a seamless routine where he's not annoyed because the internet's not on in the morning or somebody's looking for something like it just flows really well. And the kids have completely gotten used to it and it's just fully accepted in our family. Um, But it took us so many different tries of different possible techniques to get to that place. And now actually it worked for us because my, my kids, my younger daughter doesn't really have a phone, but she has one for emergencies. We live on a farm and we don't have a landline. And my son had a phone and neither of them had data. So that worked. But my son just recently went on exchange and we had to add data to his phone. And so then there was like this little glitch in the plan. So now it's the unplugging and the taking the phone. And it's a, a real journey to try and figure out all those techniques that work. But it also helped me 
to just completely log off at nine o'clock as well. So I noticed immediately with me that I wasn't scrolling or interested once that internet was turned off as well. But yeah, it's a lot of trial and error. I just wanted to comment really quickly on the journey that you were describing and the trial and error. And I just think that's so important. And I can definitely speak for myself. I assume it goes for Jocelyn too, that we're just always experimenting on ourselves and what works. And Jocelyn brought up that word compassion earlier. And I think that is so important in this space. And there's an author, his name is Johan Hari or Johan Hari. I'm sorry, I don't know which that is, but he has this wonderful quote that the internet is only 10,000 days old. And that was true at the time. Right now it's maybe 13 to 14,000 days old, but regardless, it's very, very new. And I think just to really look at that objectively and understand that all of these devices and technologies are so new in our lives and it's changed everything so much. And it's going to take us some time to really figure out how to navigate these things and just to really remember that we're all beginners and we're all learning. And and that it's it continues to change really quickly. And so do your kids. So I wouldn't expect that anybody had a plan for technology use that was static. And if it was static, you're probably going to find that it stops working or what you're describing too is it starts eroding our relationships with our kids. And as they get older, what we want to be doing is encouraging more independence and checking in on the skills that we're trying to kind of embed and and and, and get them to demonstrate to us that we can actually let them go and be independent on the internet. So like with, you know, getting your driver's license, like with the, some of the, the safety features of cars and roads, you know, a hundred years ago, you had a chauffeur, not because, well, partly because you were rich, but partly because no one had worked out how to actually drive these things yet. You, you got somebody specific to drive that. Now we have, you know, seatbelts and all of these rules. So I wouldn't expect you to kind of just have that set and forget kind of thing going on in your family. And because it is also new and because we don't really, you know, like know how to do this, it's it's got to be trial and error. And the key I think that I find with families is they go, it didn't work, I gave up. Mm-hmm. And it's like, yeah, it didn't work. So then the joy is discovering what does and doing that collaboratively with your kids, whether they're, you know, my my daughter is six. I do a lot of stuff collaboratively with her because I'm showing her how to think through and solve a problem and come up with some of the compromises and and that, you know, growth mindset, I guess, of keeping on putting in the effort, even if you don't necessarily get this perfect result. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It takes a lot of effort and energy to approach it that way because I find well, I'll, I'll give you an example that I'm navigating right now that's brand new, and it's been really interesting. So my son somehow has never gamed. He's um, 15 and a half, and it, it wasn't really like a, a really distinct choice. We just never got into it. I don't know. He never got exposed. I guess we delayed media for a while, whatever it was. But he's really into creating animations like on, I can never describe it like he can. He'd be horrified if he listened to me. (laughs) He uses uh, really abstract apps to make these like crazy animations. And he, it takes a long time for him to make like one beautiful 3D image. And so we've had to navigate that screen time, but he got a new computer 
for his birthday, just like specifically for this, but it also happens to be great for gaming. And the other night I went in and he was trying gaming for the first time. I think his friends had been talking about it and he was gaming. And like, at first my react, like inside, I was like, Oh God, no, like we've come so far, like no gaming at all in my head. But then I was like, no, like he's 15. I'm going to have to let go at some point and let him navigate it for himself and him figure it out. And so then luckily he went to Prince two days later and I don't have to worry about it for a few months because he's living with a family where the parents have no cell phones. It's amazing. (laughs) But anyway, I know that that will come and that we'll have to have a whole bunch of conversations. And what the first step for me too, is I'm going to have to do some research. I've never really done any research or looked into gaming at all because I haven't had to. But yeah, what would you recommend for parents? It doesn't even have to be gaming, but even just like if their kid's really interested, I know there's like a real Minecraft thing in like the younger ages and everybody Mm -hmm. wants to do it. How do parents approach it mindfully and not just like, I mean, maybe a hard no is aligned with their family values, but yeah, how how do they approach that? Look, I think one of the key things is to really sit with what those fears are. So like you did kind of go, oh no, he's on a game, therefore. And we tell Mm -hmm. ourselves a massive story that every young man who plays a game is going to become an addict, who never leaves home, who, you know, and and there's a massive catastrophizing that happens because the media pushes out such awful stories about gaming. The truth is probably between 90, you know, and 97% of people who game do so for fun and they actually get a lot more benefit than they do negatives. So sit with and really challenge yourself on what you're, you know, the story that you're telling yourself about technology. Mm. And then, you know, like you were saying, I'm going to have to go and do some research. And my, the thing that jumps into my mind is, but do you? Because that's another piece of your mental load. Yeah. While you want to be informed, he's old enough to come back to you. And I've got a little um, due diligence report on my website where I actually say, next time your kid comes to you saying, I want this game, I want to do this thing, cool, go write me a report. Go tell me what the game is, who made it, how much money do they make out of it, how many women work for their company, all of those sorts of things. And they then need to present to you to explain to you why why they want it and whether they should get it. Key mm. thing is if you've got an 11-year-old coming to you with a game that's R-rated and you, you've you got a really big sell to do to me there to, to get me over the line as to why you would play a game that is absolutely not designed for your brain. Yeah. And that's that conversation starter that yeah. then rather than being a hard no, they mm-hmm. come around naturally to annoy themselves because it's like, this is not made for me. This yeah. is not made for my brain. This is not made for our family values. And that, again, really changes the conversation. So you don't have to be the bad cop saying no and doing all that stuff. They're actually learning so much out of those conversations by doing that little activity. Yeah, I love that. I'll be looking for that resource. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I also am reminded, I read this book years ago called Everything Bad is Good for You. And it... Says a lot in the book, but some of the quotes that they pull out are some journal or, or magazine articles from, I don't know, centuries ago. And there are all these people that are so concerned that kids are reading too many books mm. and that it's going to cause them to not be able to remember anything on their own, that they're going to outsource all, you know, knowledge capturing to books and 
They're just sitting inside all day reading and not playing outside. And I mean, it sounds nearly identical to parents' fears of video games many times. And I I think it's laughable. And it's, again, all about that compassion and giving ourselves that grace of being like, this is new. New things are scary. We want to protect children in our own minds, but it's just really putting things into context. I think it might also be helpful to know that we do have some research on our website on metaversalwellbeing.com, and we do have a full video game, actually, like collection and section. And the net net that we, you know, really saw when we were pulling together all of these academic articles is that. There is no one-size-fits-all answer to video games. Some are incredibly beneficial and collaborative and really promote problem-solving, while some are admittedly not great and can bring out some negative tendencies. But to Jocelyn's point, these things really should be evaluated on a case-by-case basis, and that's probably the most important part. And and when you have young people who might have um, autism spectrum disorder, ADHD, certain things that might kind of create some more dependency or that real love of games because it plays into some of their neurobiology and their their psychological needs. If you've got kids who really aren't necessarily great with socialising, being online can actually support social anxiety while interacting so there's, you know, many podcast episodes we could do just talking about games and some of the differences within that. That's not to say that that 1% to 3% of the population, which is generally the about, about the amount that studies do keep finding, develop pathological or problematic gaming use or gaming disorder as the ICD-10 and 11 kind of outline. Mm. Yeah, there's so much there. My so daughter, much. just <laughs> as mm-hmm. a, a tiny anecdote, my third child is neurodiverse and she is obsessed with, she has an, it's called nonverbal learning disability, which means actually she learns very well orally. Mm-hmm. And she has been from a young age, just obsessed with audiobooks. And mm-hmm. she, it's almost like she can't function without one, like listening to something. She mm-hmm. needs the audio input. Yeah. So that was my first taste in really playing with like, what are screen rules and how do they work even differently for, for each of the individuals in our family and their own unique needs. But another thing I, I was curious, so one of the things I kind of grapple with a little bit is, well, I'd love even the scientific approach is screen time even like our phone use let's just say adult phone use is it addictive per se because my husband is a recovered alcoholic and he's now almost eight years sober and in the alcoholic community not always but mostly the the cure for lack of a better word is abstinence like they just give up the entire thing and I've often thought about this because Our phones, you know, I find myself just drawn to my phone and I don't even realize it. Like it's that kind of, I want to say addiction, but I don't know if that's the proper word. And yet there's no way that we can really separate ourselves, although this family in France has. So that's amazing. Yeah. (laughs) And yeah, I have many questions about this family in France. I would love to talk to them. This is, a, again, like we could talk for hours about this, but the I guess my perspective and where I see it with the research and, and also what is useful for families. So I can nerd out and tell you all of the reasons why using the term addiction is probably really unhelpful 
because we are handing this out to kids and schools are saying, please go and use this. We do also demonize phones over laptops, even though something like Snapchat is available on laptops. Mm. So you can ban phones from school and your kid can still be sitting on Snapchat on their laptop. They can still be sitting in a Google Doc passing electronic notes the way that I did with my friend Amy in 1994. Yeah. So we're kind of kidding ourselves that A, destruction didn't happen in generations before us mm. and that humans are really, really good at sitting with the hard stuff and doing the most, you know, virtuous thing that reach, helps us reach our goals. Ultimately, we are designed to feel comfortable and to have, you know, to j- just feel good in the moment. It's really, yeah. really sometimes difficult, especially for young people to work towards that goal if that goal is quite abstract it's like finishing high school or doing well and getting into uni that if you're in year nine that's like three years away that's like me thinking about what I'm going to do for my 60th birthday it just doesn't kind of you know have the guts to it in terms of whether phones are addictive I would sort of bring it back quite provocatively to thinking about well is a hypodermic needle addictive If you are using that needle for a vaccine or to give yourself insulin, if you're a diabetic, we wouldn't say that that was an addiction. Mm. However, if you're, you know, injecting intravenous uh, illicit drugs, then yes, Mm. that's that's a different thing. So I come back here to what is the content we're consuming, Mm. right? And again, if we go into any of the social media platforms, the the content creators and the influencers or the, you know, mums who are just sharing whatever they're kind of interested in, And there's some good stuff there and there's some not so good stuff there. And we have the choice around who we follow. We also, I mean, sometimes, yes, you get served up ads and you get served up all of these things. And that's just like the the, what you pay to play in those spaces when ultimately they're free. Is it addictive? I guess it's more about the dependency and the habits that we're forming because it's it's convenient. It's right there. You need to have it with you to have your credit card or, you know, in the pandemic, the QR codes to check in and things like that. So unraveling ourselves from that, I think it is a little bit too late. And and the abstinence approach, I think, is quite difficult. You'd have to be pretty well resourced to to be able to do that from my mm. perspective. We also know that it's quite different to, so behavioral addictions are quite different to substance use. There's people who will bang on about, oh, the dopamine is the same as this and that and the other when you take cocaine or, you know, stuff like that. It's not quite the same. And the nuance of that, I think we have to be really careful and 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 not just kind of spray all of this dopamine stuff everywhere. Like dopamine is, is actually a problem when you sit down and look at it. So yeah, lots to say on that. But but ultimately, let's just tone down the use of the word addiction, especially when we're kind of handing things out for birthdays, bar mitzvahs and Christmas. Yeah. Well, I love that analogy with the needle. Like, yeah, it's my, I know my phone is very different than my husband's phone. Not that his is better or worse, but it's a very different experience. Hmm. So we do have that. It's it's empowering to think of it like that because we have, and and also to think of, bringing that lesson to our children and how they fill up their their phones and their the apps they use and the media that they're consuming in a a more conscious way. That's what I I really always come back to like such a broken record but that food metaphor that both Jocelyn and I bonded over and I do think you know comparing it to illegal substances you know it it is so different because media like food is something that we can't live without right now. I mean, it it is everywhere. And even beyond media, information is something we can't live without. And that's what ultimately media and all of these devices are offering. So 
if it's this unavoidable necessity, quite frankly, again, demonizing it and likening it to illicit substances, I think just creates such a contentious relationship in your own mind. And that contentious relationship is just the foundation to so many unproductive or unhealthy habits to follow. Yeah. Well, thank you. It's been so refreshing. I'm going to ask one more question. And it's the question I ask all my guests, which is what is one routine or rhythm in your current daily life that's serving and nourishing you right now? And it doesn't have to have anything to do with screens, just a routine or rhythm that's serving you. I'm obsessed with my lists and brain dumping, right? Really trying to capture all of the energy and ideas that I have and being able to honor those without necessarily acting upon them. I actually have a list of things to do in my next life because this life I feel is full enough already. And just creating time to kind of brain dump and capture and then turn that into priorities and and organize. I also have a very particular cup that I like to drink tea out of in winter. So once the weather's sort of under about 15 degrees Celsius, I go to my tea ritual. But yeah, they're probably my two two main things. Yeah. So mine is digitally based and it's my news routine. And that is one internet habit that I have really been able to stick to and I feel really good about. And I really do believe that it has enhanced my quality of life and my level of anxiety in in really tangible ways. And so I'm not sure if I mentioned this before, but I actually have different channels. I call them channels on my social media and they're different accounts dedicated to different goals or information types. So I have a dedicated news channel, which is its own social media account. And I follow 30 sources because that's what's manageable for me, but they are Across the political spectrum, there's local news, national news, global news. So I've just been super selective to have this very varied and balanced accounts that I follow, sources there. And keeping the news separate from the rest of my feeds has really helped me contain it and helped me prevent that emotional whiplash, you know, seeing something horrific smashed between a cake recipe and an ad for leggings. You know, that's such a a horrible kind of Russian roulette that we're playing on social media all the time. And I always make sure that I check it after I've had my morning routine, after I've had those grounding moments. And I really think about it like reading the morning paper. I, I, I have my matcha with it. And I always do my best to finish with a good news article so that I can kind of end on a high note. And this practice of really keeping the news contained, high quality, it helps me stay informed, but also not totally overwhelmed. And, you know, of course, looking at the world today, there are some news items that just completely overtake my regular feed. And and that's okay, because I do think when there are such important and collective events to process, I think it, you know, I do want to be a part of that. Up to a point, of course, you know, these things can just really weigh you down in uh, unproductive and unhealthy ways. But yeah, in general, keeping it contained and keeping it selective has Mm -hmm. been game-changing for me. And can you both share a little bit more about metaversal well-being, how people can interact with you, and then also maybe your individual projects as well? 
Yeah. So Metaversal Wellbeing, you can visit our website, which is www.metaversalwellbeing.com. We have all sorts of background thinking, but our thinking and tools page on that site is just full of free resources from different tools to research to our own independent thinking on these topics. And I think anyone will find something that's helpful to them there. And our Instagram is too, is where we place most of our social efforts. Again, we it's hard to be stretched too thin across all of these different accounts. So we really invest in Instagram. We're, we're so on our LinkedIn Instagram as well. We, yeah. So yeah, yes, we're on LinkedIn, LinkedIn as well. Yes. <laughs> we, we decided <laughs> yes, that LinkedIn was a good place to kind of really spread the wings of some of these conversations into more of an adult and professional population as well. Mm. And just to make LinkedIn a little bit more fun because it gets a bit bogged down in, in people's serious career announcements. Yeah. So we're, we're over there. And I have to say, most of this work has come from Kelly. She's really driving metaverse wellbeing. I, we just I feel like I just pop in every two weeks and we have these really great conversations and she goes and makes it all happen. So I do have to make sure that she's, you know, properly attributed for all the like incredible thinking that she's um, spearheading this through. So, yes. Mm. Yeah, thank you. I think of Jocelyn as metaverse well-being's like chief medical officer. <laughs> like she really, yeah, helps make sure that things are really sound from a scientific standpoint too. Yeah, I I felt that in this conversation. Well, thank you both for being here. It was awesome having you. I know that anyone who listens to this will get so much value out of it. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. It was great. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode. If you found it inspiring or helpful, please share it with friends and family or subscribe. If you're looking for information and inspiration, head to MeganRoseWilson.com. Hey, one more thing, the fine details. I hope you found today's episode informative and enjoyable. The Rhythm Routine and Reverence podcast and content posted by Megan Rose Wilson are presented solely for general informational, educational, and entertainment purposes. The information shared here should not be considered a substitute for professional medical, health, or legal advice. The use of information on this podcast or materials linked to the podcast or website is used at the user's own risk. Listeners should not disregard or delay in obtaining medical advice and consulting with their own trusted and qualified healthcare professionals, physicians, psychotherapists, or other experts. The views and opinions expressed expressed by our guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the views of Rhythm Routine and Reverence or its host, Megan Rose Wilson. We do our best to provide accurate and up-to-date information, but we make no representations or warranties of any kind express or implied about the completeness, accuracy, reliability, or suitability of the information discussed in this podcast. By listening to this podcast, you acknowledge and agree that Rhythm Routine and Reverence and its hosts, guests, and producers will not be held responsible for any consequences or actions taken as a result of the information presented in this show.